Amen. It is still the blood. And our chains are gone because of that blood. Because that innocent lamb, that pure son of God, allowed his blood to be shed. That we may be restored, that we may be made righteous in our creator's eyes. What a beautiful gift, what a beautiful blessing that is. What a blessing it is to be here this morning. As we look at the message for this morning, we've finished two letters in the New Testament since I've been here now. We've been through Galatians and we've been through James. And this morning, we go back to the Old Testament, specifically to look at a story, the story of a man who went on quite a journey, not a voluntary journey, but a journey nonetheless. And over the next few weeks and months, we're going to look at the life of Joseph. And it's interesting, like I said, we've been in the New Testament since I've been here. And you may ask yourself, Kevin, why study the Old Testament? Well, for one, it's part of the Bible. It's a big part of the Bible. But there are also a lot of very crucial and powerful truths and tools available to us in the Old Testament. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, and the Scriptures that Paul was talking about were the Old Testament Scriptures, the New Testament was still being lived out. But he says we might have hope. The Old Testament is there, the stories are there, the accounts are there, that we might have hope. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we may, might not desire evil as they did. On down in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, verse 11, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Those things that happened in the Old Testament, they were written down, they were carried forward for the people of the New Testament era for our time, for us to learn from, for us to see a glimpse, to see different aspects of the nature of God. The Old Testament is crucial. The stories there are vital. I encourage you to pray for renewed desire to learn them, to study them, to read them. Maybe you have that desire. Praise the Lord. I'd love to hear your experiences as you've read them and what, how God has spoken to you through them. As I said, we're going to begin looking at the story of Joseph, the life of Joseph. And the life of Joseph of the Old Testament is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I think I've shared with you guys before that I enjoy biographies. I enjoy to read biographies. I used to enjoy watching the biography show on, A&E, on the A&E network. I love to talk to people and hear your personal stories about your life, where you are, where you've been, where you believe you're headed. I love to learn about people and to just learn from their experiences. It's a, it's a joy of mine, something I deeply enjoy. With the life of Joseph, 
There is so much to learn. I've, I've heard this story. I've read this story over and over. But at any time, when you study something in detail, when you really start to dig, you learn more than you thought you knew. And that has begun already, even with this first sermon that I have been preparing for this week to jump into the life of Joseph. We're going to be looking... Finally today, at Genesis chapter 37, we're not going to read the whole chapter because it's a fairly lengthy chapter. We're going to be touching on some different verses and looking at some highlights in it. But before we get to chapter 37, we first want to look at some background. See, chapter 37 opens with Joseph being 17. That's other than the mention of his birth. We don't hear much else about Joseph until chapter 37 when he's 17 years old. So there's a lot happened in the 17 years prior to that. And we just want to look at a few of those things this morning. Well, that 17 years was Joseph's childhood. So the question I asked myself, what would have Joseph's childhood been like? Well, we know a lot of the story of Jacob. We know how he got to there, how the sons were conceived and how they were brought into the world. But we want to look at that story in just a little bit more detail this morning and kind of refresh our memories. And this is the background that we want to look at. We don't have a lot of details over those 17 years. In fact, it's covered in about eight chapters of Genesis, which seems like a lot. But in eight chapters, you try to tell 17 years worth of history or even more than that, because Joseph is one of the youngest, the second to the youngest of Jacob's children. But we want to look at a few highlights, as I said. And you remember, as you look through Scripture, Jacob and Israel are the same person. Jacob's name was changed to Israel by God. So anytime you see Israel, it's referring to Jacob, it's referring to the same man. And we want to pick up the story back in Genesis 29, and we'll be hitting a few verses here and there. You can turn to 29, or you can watch the screen for some of the verses to come up. But we're going to start back in Genesis chapter 29, and Jacob headed east from his father. And he was going to his relative Laban's house. And when he's on his way, he found a well, and he discovered that this well is where the shepherds of the land brought their sheep to get water. And as he was watching, he saw these shepherds coming and the sheep, but no one was getting water yet. And the reason was, is they all waited until everyone was there before they opened, before they rolled the stone away to the well. But he noticed a young lady, a shepherdess, come with her flock. And I got to ask him some questions, and he realized that this Indeed, was his cousin, Rachel. And ignoring the custom of the land, Jacob went ahead and rolled the stone away and helped her give her flock water. And that's where his relationship with Rachel begins. Jacob was very taken by Rachel. He went to work for his uncle Laban. And he didn't go there working expecting anything. Because it was Laban who brings it up in Scripture. He says, how, how is it that you work for me for nothing? I should pay you something. And you get the sense as you read the Scripture that Jacob was waiting for this question. And he asked that he might have his daughter Rachel's hand in marriage. And Laban said, absolutely. Why, why would I give her to anyone else but you? And he said, how about you work seven years for me, for my daughter's hand? And they agreed to that. And And Jacob put in seven years of labor for Laban, working in expectation. And Scripture mentions that this time passed quickly to Jacob because he was anticipating. 
this marriage to Rachel. Well, the time came. The seven years came to an end. Jacob wanted his payment. Laban gave him Leah. In fact, what's interesting is you read the story. They have a celebration. He gives his daughter to Jacob in marriage, and it's not until the next morning that Jacob realizes that he's been had. Always been a curiosity of mine, but I guess a curiosity that will be answered sometime later, how he could not know. But he didn't. Scripture tells us that. But he wakes up and he's furious. He said, this is not who I worked for you for. Laban said, well, it's not the custom of my land. I couldn't, I couldn't give you my younger daughter before my older. And I'm sure Jacob's thinking, well, why didn't you tell me this seven years ago? Laban wanted his labor. I think he was a bit deceptive. But he said, okay, well, spend a week with my daughter Leah, and then I will give you my daughter Rachel, and then you can work for me another seven years for her. And that's what they agreed to. And he worked those seven years. Scripture tells us that he loved Rachel more than Leah. And I think as we go through these texts, you'll see that he didn't hide that fact. He didn't hide that fact at all. In fact, he went out of his way, it seems like, to show that he loved her more, that he adored her. This wasn't very good judgment on Jacob's part, was it? How did he think that was going to turn out? How did he think things were going to be in his house when he favored one member of his family over another and made it very obvious? It couldn't have been good. The environment had to be very tense. In fact, Scripture tells us that it was. So what did happen? Well, to start with, Leah had children. Rachel couldn't. Rachel was barren. So you have the dynamic that Rachel is the favored wife. But now flip the coin. The unfavored wife is the one who's able to have children, and Rachel cannot. You think that fed for some more tension in the house? I believe tensions continued to build. It even came to the point... Leah was having these children, but then you have to see in Scripture that he must have stopped spending time with Leah. Because Rachel went to Leah one day, and and Reuben had come in from the field with mandrakes. And Rachel said, share your son's mandrakes with me. And Leah told her, she said, you have my husband, and now you want my son's mandrakes? She said, fine. Fine. Give me your son's mandrakes, and my husband can spend the night with you. How awkward does that sound to you? How manipulative does that sound to you? Does it sound like a house of peace and a house of rest? Finally, in Genesis chapter 30, starting in verse 22, it says, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. This son was Joseph. This son was born into a house, I believe, of great turmoil, of great tension. And that's where Joseph's life began. So we had this preferential treatment, and it was feeding this discord, and it was feeding this disruption in this house. 
Let's pile some tragedies on top of this yet. In Genesis chapter 34, starting in verse 1. Now, among his sons, Jacob also had daughters. One of those daughters was Dinah. And that's where we start. It says, now. Now did of the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hammon the Hivite, the prince of the land saw her, he seized her and he lay with her and humiliated her. This man violated Jacob's daughter. It was a wretched, wretched thing that he did. What did Jacob do about it? Chapter 34, verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Why was he waiting on his sons? What was the purpose of that? Scripture doesn't really tell us, but it's curious to me. If my child had been violated in this way, why would I be waiting for my sons to act? I am the father. I'm the leader of my home. Why am I not acting? Why am I not doing something? Why am I waiting on my sons to return? And the truth is, Jacob never answered this horrible thing. He never addressed it in Scripture that we know of. Shechem went on in Scripture to ask for Dinah for his son. Never apologized for what happened. And he offered money, offered a dowry to buy her. Because she is who his son wanted. Jacob's sons, by the way, were furious. And they actually heard about it before they returned from the flocks. In chapter 34, verse 13, we hear what they did about it. It says, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamar. And it says they answered him deceitfully. They acted all kind. And they acted all accepting. But it was in a deceitful way. They had a plan. And they were upset, of course, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They they devised a big plan. They said, in order for him to marry our sister, you and all the men of your land have to be circumcised. And then after they had obediently accomplished this, they took advantage of their weakness and they slaughtered them. How awful. All of the death, all the destruction... Piling sin upon sin. What was Jacob's response to this? He said nothing about what happened to Dinah. How did he respond to what his sons had did to the men of this land? Chapter 34, verse 30. It says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, they were the leaders of this wretchedness. He said, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Parasites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed. 
both I and my household. There's a lot of me, my, and I in those verses, isn't there? How do we respond when our children fail? Have you ever had the feeling, oh, this is embarrassing? Oh, do do they know what they cost me? You see, he showed no concern for what they had done to these people. He showed no concern for what it was testifying that was in in the hearts of his sons. He was concerned about how it affected him. Well, how did his sons respond to his concern? Well, they went on to justify themselves. And what did he say to their justification? Nothing. He let them be. He let them have the last word. What do you think that did in their hearts? Do you think it cemented the evil, the wretchedness, the deception that they were believing? I believe it did. It was unaddressed, not dealt with. There was another incident. In Genesis chapter 35, verse 22, it says, While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Again, what a wretched thing. What an evil, sinful thing that Reuben did. So what happened? What did Jacob do? Scripture says, And Israel heard of it. And that's all it says. It doesn't say that he did anything about it. Now, we, as we go farther in Genesis, in fact, in chapter 49, starting in verse 3, he does mention it at the end of his life. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. This is as unstable as water. I think I've used the analogy before of trying to drive a boat. It's not very stable, is it? It takes a lot of finesse, doesn't it? Water, if wind can blow it, throwing a rock in it sends waves through it. He's telling him, you're just unstable. Well, Jacob, it's nice that you addressed it, but it's a little too little too late. You see, Reuben could have used the hand of his father, the discipline of his father in his life to help him walk through and see what was wrong, what was sinful. But from what we see in Scripture, Jacob didn't address any of these things. And these are just the things that we know about. So what is the result of this? What is the result of Jacob turning his back on these things or responding in a selfish way to these things? That brings us to Genesis chapter 37. And this again is where we begin the story of Joseph. We pick it back up. We saw his birth, and now we pick the story back up in Genesis chapter 37. As we said, he was a 17-year-old boy. He was the apple of his father's eye. And the chapter starts and says that he was out pasturing the sheep with his brothers. Something happened. It doesn't say what happened, but he came back to his father and he gave a bad report. 
Well, this was strike one against Joseph with his brothers. Nobody likes it. So nobody likes a tattletale, and that's what I'm sure Joseph appeared to his brothers as. And as we said, Joseph was the apple of his father's eye. In fact, in chapter 37, verse 3, it says, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. And again, I believe he made this very obvious, which we know he did. Because it says he made him a robe of many colors and sent him out with this robe. How do you think that came across to Jacob's sons? How do you think that came across to Joseph's brothers? They hated him because of it. Don't you think they saw the favoritism that Jacob had shown to Joseph's mother over their mothers. And now he's showing that same favoritism to Joseph over them. This was strike two, and it was a big one. Jacob never addressed their hatred. He never called them out on their hatred, at least not that we see in Scripture. He just went on his way playing the favoritism that he had always played. So then what happens? Well, Joseph, this favored son of Jacob, has a dream. And in this dream, he, it's not an ordinary dream. Not just some dream that doesn't make sense that we sometimes have. But in this dream, it gave evidence that Joseph would someday rule over his brothers and his parents. And Joseph went and told this dream. And the truth is, it was a prophetic dream from God. And I've often commented and said, you know, Joseph, you just kept your mouth shut. And just because it was true didn't mean you had to say it, because look what grief it brought you. But that grief was well on its way before he ever shared this dream. God had him dream this dream. He gave him this dream to dream. He had him tell them this dream because it was all part of his sovereign plan to get Joseph to the place where he wanted him to be. So Joseph shares this dream. What happened? Well, Jacob's response, he thought Joseph was a little bit presumptuous. So even my mother, your mother and myself, you will reign over us? That was his main concern. In chapter 37, verse 11, says, And his brothers were jealous of him. 
But his father kept a saying in mind. Again, the jealousy is fueled. The jealousy is fed. The jealousy grows. I can't imagine the atmosphere again. I just, I cannot fathom the tension in that family. And what did Jacob do? It says he, how did it word that? It says that he kept a saying in mind. It means he thought about it. It came to his mind a lot, but he didn't know what to do with it. And he didn't do anything with it. But what did he do? Did he address their anger? No. Did he address the brother's jealousy? No. He put Joseph in this new coat of many colors that he had made for him and sent him out alone to check on his brothers that hated him. Chapter 37, verse 18. They, his brothers, saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They had had it. The years of favoritism, the years of unaddressed anger and jealousy had come to a fever pitch. And they had their opportunity. Their brother that they hated was all alone and free game. And to top it all off, there had the, the very fresh memory of this young brother telling him that he was going to rule over them. And they weren't going to have anything of it. So what did they decide to do? They decided to kill him. But Reuben kind of had a glimpse of sense. He thought they were going a little far to think that they needed to kill their brother. So he devised a plan to put him in a pit. And he didn't tell his brothers what he was going to do. But his plan was, when they were not looking, to get him out of the pit and get him back to their dad. Get him back to Jacob. Judah didn't know Reuben's plan. But he kind of had a conscience himself. As far as he knew, Joseph was in this pit waiting to be killed. So when these traitors came along, he decided to take an opportunity to make a little profit rather than kill him. So without Reuben knowing, they pull Joseph out of the pit and sell him. Reuben gets back and realizes that Joseph's gone and he's just distraught. Now what do I do? And he finds out that they sold him. Well, what do we tell our father? Again, they resort to deception. They kill a lamb. They put blood on the coat. They take it back to their father and say this is all that was left of their brother. They couldn't find him. How do you think jo- Joseph felt? Joseph spent time in the bottom of this pit. As far as he knew, he was going to die. The hatred and the wrath of his brothers were coming to this point. Something had to be done. But all of a sudden, he's pulled out of the pit. And he's sold. He's lonely. He's going down, first in the pit, then going down the road with these traitors. No family. Headed away from his homeland. He received this horrible treatment from his brothers that he didn't deserve. He was sent to a country that he had never been in before in his life. They spoke a language that he didn't understand. 
Couldn't communicate with anyone there. And as we go through the story of Joseph, we'll see that it's going to get worse before it gets better for Joseph. Joseph was a victim of an undisciplined family. Jacob didn't discipline his boys. He didn't address the sin issues in their lives. Jacob's sons were in control and they knew it. Does this story that we're looking at this morning, does it give you a charge? Does it give you a challenge? Have you seen situations like this in your life? Maybe not to this drastic measure. But have you seen homes where the child rules the home? Have you seen homes where parents don't address sin issues? See, those children are sinners just like we are. And left unchecked, we're going to destroy ourselves. If our children are left unchecked, they have the potential to destroy themselves. America, the families in America, the homes in America are in a great state of disorder. The American families, American families are in jeopardy. I don't know how many of you have been keeping up with the news articles and the stories about Ethan Couch. He's an 18-year-old young man from Texas. Two years ago, he was 16 years old. He was driving down the road in his pickup truck and had four of his buddies with him. And he was drunk. And he struck a car parked alongside of the road and killed four people in that car. He went to court. He was convicted of manslaughter on four counts. In the sentencing process of the, of the trial, his lawyer argued and coined a new phrase. He called it affluenza, playing on the word influenza. And he said, this, this boy, this young man was a victim of affluenza. His parents were wealthy. And they gave him everything he ever wanted and they didn't hold him accountable for anything. So it's not his fault. We all have our decisions to make. We all have our choices to make. But his parents didn't do him any favors. And his undisciplined life led directly to the death of these four people. Fast forwarding to December of this year. One of the conditions of his parole was that he was not to have any alcohol. Never mind that he's a minor. But one of the conditions of his parole was that he was not to have any alcohol. Well, a video surfaced in December of him at a party where there was drinking. It wasn't verified that he had had anything to drink yet. But I guess as a precaution, his mom took matters into her own hands. They went as far as to threw a little, they threw a little going away party for Ethan. And then him and his mom headed to Mexico to hide from the authorities. You see, instead of facing the consequences of his actions, his mom helped him hide. His mom helped him run. So they're going to be on the run in Mexico, but they got discovered. They used a telephone to call and order pizza and it got tracked. The mom got deported from Mexico back to the United States and she's going to face charges of helping to hide a fugitive. 
He's still in Mexico under, I guess, what you would say, asylum or a, a stay of deportation. Still running from the consequences of his actions. What's interesting is that if he would be brought back to the United States, he has two options. The, the district attorney has two options. He could be put in juvenile detention until he turns 19 and be released. Or if they're successful in trying him as an adult, the maximum he could get is 120 days in jail. That's what they're running from. 120 days in jail is 120 days in jail. But how small would those consequences be compared to the four lives that were taken as a result of his actions? But no, his parents, his mother, was helping him run from those consequences. And now she's paying. She's going to have legal retribution to pay because of it. And he's no better off than he was. This is foolishness. And when we talk about, when I say foolishness, I mean it in the sense of poor judgment. That's part of the definition of foolishness. That's why I titled the sermon today, A Father's Foolishness. Jacob had some poor judgment with his sons. We're all guilty of poor judgment. We're humans. We make mistakes just like our children do. We've all done foolish things. God used the circumstances of Jacob's family to get Joseph where he wanted him to be as the leader of Egypt to deliver that country and to deliver his own family. That doesn't justify the foolishness that got him there. But it testifies to the sovereignty of God. It reinforces the sovereignty of God. God is in control. And no matter how hard we run from Him, we have a choice to make, whether to serve Him or whether to turn our backs on Him. And we have a price to pay for that. But we ultimately will not change His greater plan. He will work what He desires to work in His will. But when we refuse to live according to His nature and according to His plan, there are consequences to be paid. As we look at this story this morning, there are three points that I want to bring out quickly and focus on. The first one I want to look at is the fact that no family is exempt from adversity. Jacob, the one who God chose to bring his son through, through his lineage, he wasn't exempt from adversity. Some self-inflicted, some out of anyone's control. They weren't exempt We're not exempt from adversity. It doesn't matter how godly we think someone is. They're not exempt from adversity. The thing is, how do we face that adversity? And that brings a second point. Do we deal with the issues? Have you ever heard the analogy, oh, issues come up, problems happen, instead of confronting them and dealing with them, We just pick up the proverbial rug and we push it under the rug and we think nobody will notice except there's these big bumps in the rug. Lumps there for people to trip over. And we have to deal with the issues. Jacob should have dealt with the issue of Dinah. He should have dealt with the issue of how his sons responded to to the issue with Dinah. He should have dealt with Reuben. 
but he didn't. He allowed it all to go unchecked and to build up. Do you address, do you deal with the issues with your children or do you just turn your face to them? The third thing is, do you understand the destructiveness of hatred and jealousy? How often do we see someone's hatred and we try to figure out if it's justified or not? And often we can find reasons like, well, they have a right to be upset. Leah had a right to be upset. Jacob played favoritisms with Rachel. Jacob's sons had a right to be upset with Joseph. It wasn't fair that he was a favorite son of their father. No, those things aren't fair and they're wrong. But nothing justifies hatred and jealousy. Hatred and jealousy only lead to destruction and separation. They have to be addressed. We can't do anything about what someone does to us. We only have control over how we respond to it. Are we teaching our children that? Are we dealing with the hatred, with the jealousy that we see come up in our children? Are we dealing with sins that come up? Or are we just shoving them under the rug? Don't justify sin. Don't turn your face away. It may be painful at the time. I've caught myself at times. It just seems easier, easier to avoid confrontation. We're only avoiding it temporarily because unavoided confrontations are going to grow into much bigger confrontations. And at some point, they're going to come to a head. At some point, they're going to explode. At some point, they're going to have to be dealt with. There's going to be consequences from them. But there's rest and there's peace and there's power in addressing them straight up and, and right at the moment. As we go through the stories, we look at the, as we continue to look at the story of Joseph, Joseph is going to be God's man. We know that. Have you ever paralleled Joseph's life with the life of Jesus? Jesus was sent by the Father. He was misunderstood by his earthly brothers. He was hated by his own people. He was nailed to a cross. He too was sold for a few pieces of silver. He was left to die. But he was their future. He was our future. Joseph suffered Because of the sins of his father and the sins of his brothers. But God brought him through all of that to bring salvation to his family, to bring salvation to Egypt. Jesus suffered because of our sin. Jesus died and was resurrected, not because of anything he did. Judas was ordained to sell him for a few pieces of silver because of our sins. Because of our hatred. Because of our jealousy. Because of our debauchery. Because of our pride. Jesus had to suffer all that, not because of anything He did, but because of what we 
were going to do, what he knew we were going to do, and because he longed to save us and to restore us. You see, Joseph was brought out of his family and ultimately used to save his family from famine, from certain death, because he saved the whole nation of Egypt. Christ came to live on this earth, suffered that persecution and death, and was resurrected so that we wouldn't ultimately have to pay the price that we owed, the price that was due for our wretchedness. You say, Kevin, I'm not a parent anymore. I never have been, or I'm a grandparent now. This kind of gives me takes me back to last summer when we had our parenting series. As I was preparing for, preparing for the sermon, I thought about that. I said, like, Kevin, you already did a parenting series. But this is crucial truth, people. You may not be directly parenting someone now, but you do have influence as a grandparent. You have influence here to teach, to be a mentor to young people who you see who may be struggling, who may be straying. You have opportunity to pray to be on your knees, to be on your face and taking our young people to God, interceding for them. But parents, don't turn your eyes away. Don't ignore the sin of your children. Don't be tempted into favoritism because you may have something more in common with one of your children than you do the other. That could be a real temptation. But spend time in prayer acknowledging the things that you need to address with your children. Acknowledging where you failed. Being willing to be open and honest with your children. To walk with them. To help them not to just deal with the surface issues or deal with what embarrasses you or what costs you. But to address the roots that are deep within their souls, that are manifesting themselves as sin, that are manifesting themselves as wretchedness to people around them. Jesus loved the little children. Jesus loves the little children. He longs for them to come to Him, to seek Him, to serve Him, to follow Him. Because he longs to have them in eternity with them. We have a responsibility as parents, as grandparents, as those who have influence over young people, to shepherd them, to discipline them, to guide them, not to leave them to themselves. Because it will not turn out well. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord God, as we look at this story, and as we look at the things that led up to the journey that Joseph went on, Father. God, give us a boldness. Give us an urgency to parent our children, to mentor the children who you put within our influence, Father God. Lord, to come alongside them and in love point out when they are believing, when they are walking in things that are contrary to the nature of God. When they are allowing anger and jealousy to drive them, When we sadly, at times, feed that anger and feed that jealousy, please open our eyes to that, God. Lord, give us the wisdom and give us the strength 
to do what you have put within our power to teach our children, to build them up, to direct them in your ways, to put upon their hearts the truth that you have for us, Father. Lord, help us to look to your strength to overcome the lies that Satan puts, the, the ways that he tries to destroy families, just like he tried to destroy Jacob's family, just like he tries to destroy families today, just like he's trying to destroy the Couch family in Texas. The list could go on and on and on. Lord, I pray for a sense of urgency on every person in this congregation, Lord. God, that it's not okay. That it's not okay to turn our backs on sin. That it's not okay to leave our children to themselves. That it's not okay to leave our brothers and sisters to themselves. But it's out of love that we desire to walk alongside of them and to restore them. To cherish them. And to know that there's power available to help us to help them. And that it is still your blood that cleanses us from sin, that strengthens us, that builds us up, that carries us, Father. We praise you and we thank you for that truth, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please join us in singing the family prayer song? 